Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 487 for the 3rd of April, 2016. Ah, heck, we missed April Fool's Day. This week, nine illustrated tips for preparing to take better pictures on a vacation or anytime. In short circuits, the FBI works around Apple. Finding ways to balance security and privacy in the workplace. In spare parts, only on the website, a short history of fraudulent emails. Windows 10 is now on 270 million computers, HoloLens is shipping, if you have $3,000, and Bat Developer Rit Labs is now in the top 1% of Microsoft developers. If you're a photographer and you're not using Lightroom, you're probably working too hard. The Lightroom Photoshop combination costs about $100 a year, and I consider it a bargain. But even if you don't use Lightroom and Photoshop, you'll find some useful information in this week's program because many applications include similar basic functions. Adobe and others have video training, and lots of sites offer tips to help new users learn how to use the tools and to teach experienced users how to get the most out of the tools. The Adobe combination is so powerful because Lightroom handles all of the major modifications such as exposure, color balance, and lens corrections, while Photoshop can be used to create more precise changes all the way down to the pixel level. Summer is approaching and with it vacation season, that means you'll probably use your camera more. So this seemed like a good time to put together some tips, tricks, and tweaks that'll be useful when you get home with a camera full of images. Tip number one, shoot raw images. Even many point-and-shoot cameras offer the ability to store unprocessed images these days. Two things will happen as a result. First, your images will be much larger. Instead of 3 or 4 megabytes per image, they'll be 10 megabytes or 20 megabytes, maybe 30 megabytes, possibly even larger. That's okay, though, because storage is cheap. Second, you will be able to use every bit of information that the camera's sensor can capture. When images are saved in JPEG format, as much as three-quarters of the sensor's detail is discarded. If you want to get the best images out of Lightroom or any other image processing program, you need to start with the most detailed image. This week's program is very visual, and TechBiter Worldwide is not television. So check out the TechBiter Worldwide website to see the images I'll be talking about here. To illustrate the difference that raw images can make, I created two files of the same view, one raw and one in high-quality JPEG. Both files were underexposed by three stops. In the film world, there would be no recovery from an error such as that because each stop doubles or halves the amount of light that reaches the film sensor. One stop underexposed reduces the light to half of what it should be. A second stop of underexposure reduces that value by half. Half of half is one quarter. And a third stop underexposed reduces the already reduced value by half again. 
half of half of half is an eighth. So this is one seriously underexposed picture. The JPEG version can be improved, but not by much. Note the lack of detail in the tree behind the flowering bush. And when you look at this picture on the TechBiter Worldwide website, yeah, I know, it's a really bad picture. I didn't have anything lying around that was three stops underexposed, so I just leaned out the back window and ignored the cable TV wires and other utility lines and snapped a picture I could use here. The next image you'll see is the raw image. The shadow detail is a lot better, even from a three-stop underexposed image. But the reason for using the camera's raw mode isn't because it can save you from a disastrously underexposed image, although it can. The real reason is being able to use all of the extra information in raw files, and that gives you a much better chance of creating a remarkable image instead of just a standard snapshot. Tip number two, crop. Nearly every image made can be improved by cropping, even if you think you're doing a good job of composing in the viewfinder. The image you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is of a mother and baby hippopotamus. They were walking along a road at the Wilds, the Columbus Zoo's nature preserve near Zanesville. I was in the back of a pickup truck, and part of the truck was in the resulting image. A slight crop achieved two desired effects, First, I was able to remove the truck from the image, and second, the crop placed the hippos at one of the four ideal rule of thirds intersection points. Rule of thirds isn't exactly new. It predates photography, in fact. John Thomas Smith wrote about it in his 1797 book, Remarks on Rural Scenery. In the book, Smith quoted an even earlier work by Sir Joshua Reynolds, written in 1783, in which Reynolds discussed the balance of dark and light in a painting. Tip number three, go beyond the default tools. Lightroom divides tools into eight categories, basic, tone curve, HSL color and black and white, split toning, detail, lens corrections, effects, and camera calibration. The changes you make in the basic section affect color temperature and tint, exposure and contrast, highlights and shadows, whites and blacks, and the three controls that Adobe combined under what it calls its presence unit clarity, vibrance, and saturation. Those controls alone may be enough to create an image that exactly matches your photographic vision, but take a look inside some of the other compartments of the toolbox. One quick example, maybe you have a picture of a sky. I had one just like that, so it's the one I'm using to illustrate this point. It's an attractive image of the sky at the wilds. I had already used lens profile to correct known issues with the lens, but overall, the image was still a little dull because it was just slightly underexposed. When I increased the exposure, it brought out details in the foreground but reduced the drama that was present in the darker sky. That called for a targeted luminescence adjustment. HSL is the abbreviation for hue, saturation, and lightness, and that's where I went. I selected the luminance option, targeted the blue sky, and reduced the luminance that made the sky darker, more dramatic. Then I used the saturation tool, again selecting the sky, and increased the saturation. The result is a sky that looks a lot more like my eye saw it. And then I went perhaps what you might think one enhancement too far. I used the dehaze tool to give the image slightly more punch. I rather like it that way. And the last image in that series on the TechBiter Worldwide website, the two images 
side by side, before and after. There's quite a difference. Tip number four, and this is one that doesn't require any software at all, do things you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to hold the camera steady, but sometimes you can break that rule and create a successful image. Consider the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website from Zoo Lights at the Columbus Zoo. It's an okay picture the way it was, but then I used a long exposure and I zoomed the lens while the shutter was open. That would create a blurry image, wouldn't it? Well, of course it would, but it was what I was looking for. Long exposures, coupled with moving the camera up and down, left and right, in a circular motion, or in whatever motion you can think of, might just produce a very different image. Check it out. Tip number five. This is another one that doesn't cost anything. Look for stuff. The image I use to illustrate this is just a green extension cord, but up close, cropped, and with slightly manipulated colors. I have a feeling that this image is going to appear on my calendar next year. Tip number six. This is one that will cost you some money. Buy a book. Ben Long is a very talented photographer. Even better, he's a talented teacher. Lynda.com has several of Ben Long's videos, and if you can afford a month or two subscription at Lynda.com, you could probably watch all of them. If not, Long's Complete Digital Photography 8th Edition will serve you very well. It's more than 500 pages with information about how cameras work, what you can do to become a better photographer, and how to use the various applications that edit images. Tip number seven, add some filters. Several companies sell filters that work with Lightroom and Photoshop, but filters created using Photoshop standards will probably work in most other photo editing applications. And in addition to the filters you can buy, there's no shortage of free filters. Filters work in one of two general ways. Most appear on a filters menu, but some will be on the export with menu. Just read the instructions that come with the filter to figure out what's what. They're called filters in part because they can mimic effects that film photographers could create by adding glass or plastic filters to their lenses. They do go well beyond that in also allowing the user to create effects that could be created by developing the film in a special way or by using one or more techniques when making prints. My example picture for this one, some breadsticks that we had for Easter lunch. They were delicious and they looked pretty good in the picture but I felt I could improve a bit on the visual appearance, so I started with some of Lightroom's basic adjustments, but I still felt the image could be a little bit better. The final picture in the series makes them look freshly baked just out of the oven and toasty brown. I used NYX HDR FX Pro to accomplish this look, and I didn't have to spend any money to do it. Google acquired the NYX collection, made a basic set of filters available for free, and then, just a couple of weeks ago, released the entire full Pro set for free. You'll find them on Google's website, and there's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. By the way, most modern applications and filters automatically create duplicate versions of the original image so that you can always get back to your starting point. Lightroom is particularly helpful in this regard by creating virtual duplicates. All of Lightroom's edits are non-destructive because the program maintains a database of modifications that have been made to the image. That means the original RAW file is never actually touched. Tip number eight. Do goofy stuff for fun. Occasionally, you might look at a picture and wonder, what if? Well, stop wondering and start doing. 
In about 2003, I took a picture of one of our cats, Scampy. He's the one who used to come along with me to WTVN on Sundays for Technology Corner, and he's always loved to look out the front door. I had a picture of him sitting by the front door, looking out. Well, actually, looking up. This happened because he was sitting there one day. I had a camera in my hand, so I did what I normally do when I have a camera in my hand. I took the picture. All right, fine. Good picture of the cat, I thought, but what if? Well, I'm not going to tell you what if, but check out the TechBiter Worldwide website and see what actually became one of my favorite pictures of Scampy Cat. And finally, tip number nine. Take lots of pictures. If you have a digital camera, and who doesn't these days, your photographs are essentially free. Of course, you had to pay for the camera, you had to pay for one or more lenses, and you had to pay for an application used to edit the images. But in the old days, you would have had to pay for the camera, you would have had to pay for one or more images, and then you'd have to pay for film, pay for processing, and pay to have prints made. So instead of paying a dollar or more every time you press the shutter button, now you pay nothing. The only way to get better with any art, craft, or skill is practice. Lots of it. And when practice costs nothing, what are you waiting for? In short circuits, with more than a week to go before it had to go back to court with a status report, the FBI says it no longer needs Apple's help to open an Apple phone used by San Bernardino shooter Syed Rizwan Farouk. Case closed. But now what? Well, for Apple, it's not really good news. While Apple won't have to write software it doesn't want to write, it's clear that their phones aren't as secure as Apple thought they were. For the FBI, it's not so good either. You'd think the FBI would be able to hire people who could break the encryption on their own, or that perhaps they'd know somebody at the National Security Agency who could do the job during lunch. It's possible, even likely, that the government will declare that the method used to open the phone is now classified, much as the government retroactively classified information that had been published in magazines during the Cold War. And now it's Apple saying that the FBI should provide information about how the unknown non-governmental organization it used to open the phone did the job. Apple would like to have that information so that it can improve the encryption it uses. What we have is the end of one case, but both sides are ready to return to court as soon as another case presents itself. Reasonable people might continue to hold out hope that the participants will find some middle way. A compromise that doesn't entirely please the government and doesn't entirely please Apple. But reasonable people shouldn't hold their breath waiting for that to happen. Federal Prosecutor Sean Thompson will be discussing the legal aspects of implementing an insider threat program this coming Thursday at a conference in Boston. It'll also be webcast. Many security experts consider insiders, and by that I mean employees, contract workers, 
and those who have access to the corporate network because they provide products or services to be potentially more dangerous than hijackers who attack from the outside. That's right, the insiders, the people you work with every day, could be more of a threat to your business data. Thompson handled several FBI investigations involving insider threats. Balancing security with the privacy concerns of employees is a difficult challenge, Thompson says. The webinar will explore how to achieve a good balance by understanding the legal framework pertaining to insider threats. For example, rules pertaining to monitoring employees at work, what privacy rights employees have, whether insiders' social media accounts can be monitored, and whether an employer can monitor employees when they're not in the workplace. The webinar is scheduled for Thursday, April 7th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It is provided without charge. You'll find joining instructions on the event's LinkedIn page. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thompson has more than 15 years of experience investigating, prosecuting, and managing insider threats. He has served as the Insider Threat Program Manager and as a senior litigation attorney at the Department of Defense, as well as several capacities with the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The program is sponsored by Observe IT, creator of insider threat management software that's used to monitor corporate networks, detect threats, and prevent intrusions. We don't prevent intrusions at spare parts, only on the website. In fact, we encourage you to go there. This week you'll find a short history of fraudulent emails, Windows 10 up to 270 million computers, HoloLens shipping if you have $3,000 to spare, and the Bat developer Rit Labs is now in the top 1% of Microsoft developers. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.